whether you are an Apple fan or wrong, I mean, you like something different, uh, you have to respect that Apple has been a successful company, and most recently behind the efforts of this man, Tim Cook. Well, back in 2009, when Steve Jobs was out of uh, the office because of undergoing treatment for the cancer that he was battling at the time, uh, Tim Cook was leading the company and doing pretty well doing the job. And he gave a speech during that time where he said this. He said, we believe that we are on the face of the earth, meaning Apple, to make great products. Now, regardless, again, of whether you believe that Apple has done that or accomplished that, you have to admit to a certain degree they have. Otherwise, they wouldn't be one of the most valuable companies on the face of the planet. They have hit that target. In fact, they wanted to hit that target so much so that Tim Cook went on to say this. We believe in saying no to thousands of projects so we can really focus on the few things that are truly important and meaningful to us. In other words, Apple said, we're going to say no to all of the other possibilities that we could have in order to make sure that we hit this goal on the things that we do have. That's such an important thing for us to understand. It's an important thing for us to understand as believers because the question that you have to answer this morning is, why are you here? We heard Tim Cook say why Apple is here. But Christian, why are you here? What is your goal? Their goal is to make great products. Christian, what is your goal in life? Our text in John chapter 5 is going to answer that for us. And it's going to answer it for us in two ways. Because the answer to that question, if you are a follower of Jesus genuinely this morning, is this. Because Jesus is God, your goal is to worship him with your entire life. That's it. Simple. Just like Apple's goal. Simple. Make great products. Your goal, Christian, is because Jesus is God, your goal is to worship him with your entire life. Take your Bibles and open up to John chapter 5. We're going to begin actually in verse 16, just to get a running start to catch up from where we were last week. Last week, if you weren't with us, just to catch you up, Jesus came to Jerusalem for a feast. We don't know what feast, but he came into the the city and there was the pool of Bethesda. And there at the pool of Bethesda were all of these multitudes of sick, invalids in the text. And there was one man in particular that Jesus singled out and went to him and asked him the question, do you wish to be made well? Again, Jesus and John's way of capturing this is Jesus is after a deeper meaning than just physically well. Jesus heals the man, and the man, rather than devoting his life and following Jesus, goes off and sells Jesus out to the Pharisees because it had been the Sabbath day on which Jesus had done this miracle. We pick back up then in verse 16. It says, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Okay, notice that word persecuting, because things are going to ratchet up here momentarily. So at this point, they just, they're irked by Jesus. They don't want Jesus around. They don't want him on the Temple Mount. They don't want anyone following him. They don't want anyone listening to him. But it goes on. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, their persecution, that is, their opposition. My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to, now notice, kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now stop there for just a minute. We, this morning, are at a bit of a disadvantage. And this disadvantage is this. When we read what Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. You've probably read that before doing your daily Bible reading or come across that in John chapter 5 and kind of gone, oh, okay. Let's move on. It's one of those statements that loses its impact on us because... 
We're not under the Old Testament law. In the Old Testament law, the, the Sabbath was to be observed as holy, kept as holy, consecrated, set apart to the Lord. And one of the key components of that was that you should not do any work. We talked about that last week. The Jewish uh, rabbis had come up with 39 different categories of work that you could not do on the Sabbath. And so when Jesus makes this statement, my father is working until now and I am working, we have to do a little bit of digging here. The Sabbath was built on the model of creation. That is that Jesus, or that, that God, the father, and, and Jesus was present there too, uh, created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. The law then picked up on that model and said, because that's the case, you need to rest on that seventh day as well. Because God rested, you should rest. That's the equation there. God worked six days and rested on the seventh, and now you should also rest. In fact, the command is provided in the, the context of the, the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. The issue at hand, though, that we need to do a little bit of digging for is this. Yes, God, the Father, rested from all of his creative activity on the seventh day. But did that mean that God rested from all work on the seventh day? No. And before you pick up stones, let me explain why. Hebrews chapter 1, what does it say? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians chapter 1 says of Jesus that in him all things hold together. Listen, y'all, even the, the Jews, even the Jewish rabbis, they, they did not believe that God rested from all of his work on the seventh day. You know why? Because you know how long the earth would last if God rested from all of his work on the seventh day? Six days. And then there would be nothing. Because there is a sustaining work. There is a holding together that God does, Hebrews 1, by the word of his power, or Colossians 1, in Christ, all things hold together. There is a, a, a degree to which God is always working so that the force of gravity doesn't change so that you're crushed under your own weight or floating out into the atmosphere because things have, have gone awry. Or even the, the, the tilt of the earth on its axis, even though it seems like maybe it shifted and it's so cold outside that maybe something bad happened. No, the, the, the earth is tilted at such a precise degree as to support human life and the distance from the sun. All of this fine-tuned elements, why does it all operate that way? The answer is because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so God has always, in a sense, been working. He has never rested from all of his work. So when Jesus says here, my father is working until now, that's what he's referring to because the context is talking about the Sabbath. He's saying, yeah, my father is the one that works even on the Sabbath to hold all things together. And then Jesus says, and I myself am working. So do you see what Jesus was saying here? Jesus was saying here that he and his work is on the same category in parallel as the work of the father. Jesus is establishing his equality with the father. So get the, the, the picture here. The, the Jews are angry at Jesus for healing this man on the Sabbath. And yet rather than him retreating and getting his disciples together and saying, we need to get out of here, let's go up to Galilee again. Rather than doing that, Jesus stands his ground and doubles down. My father is working until now and I am working. But it was more than just the, the reference to the work. Because notice the, the Jews get angry that he also was calling God my father. Again, something else we need to work a little bit to, to understand. Because you call God your father. That's something that, that you're familiar with. 
Romans 8, we have received the adoption, spirit of adoption by sons, as sons and daughters, by which we can call out, Abba, Father, you understand that intimacy with God. The, the, the first century Jewish mind had no frame of reference for that. They would have never addressed the Father in such personal terms. Our Father, yes. Do they have a frame of reference, a concept for Israel as the firstborn of God? Yes. But to individually address God as my Father. They heard Jesus say that, and what they understood Jesus to be saying correctly is that Jesus was claiming a familial intimacy with the Father, that he was claiming that he was of the same substance and nature as Yahweh. We sit here in the 21st century church numb to that reality. Well, yeah, of course. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This was so radical at this time for this, this group of people that were they not given ears to hear, which this particular group weren't, this to them was nothing short of blasphemy. That he would claim to be equal with the Father in work, that he could do the same things that the Father does and say, as the Father's working, I'm working, and that's okay because we're equal. And then to go beyond that and say, and he is my Father, that I am of the same substance, the same essence, the same nature as Yahweh. The red flags would have been aplenty in the Jewish minds at this point. In fact, there's a scene later on in the Gospels in, uh, during Jesus' trial where in response to one of his statements, the, the, those present tear their robes and they accuse him of blasphemy. It doesn't say that they've done that here, but it would have been on par with that. This would have enraged the hearers. And that's why it says in the text, this was why the Jews were seeking. The word there means to search out diligently. It's the same word in the parable that Jesus told of the lost coin. When the, the widow is looking for that coin, she's searching for that coin. She, she's desperate to find that coin. It's that degree here that we find these Jews desperate to find a way to put Jesus to death. They're seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, okay, that alone was punishable by death. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Again, blasphemy. Punishable by death. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is this. It's to take that which is elevated and to bring it down to that which is low. To take that which is elevated or exalted and to make it common. And so that's what they saw Jesus doing, what they heard Jesus doing when Jesus was appealing to God as my father. Did you guys see the story of the, the man who was in court and he, as the conviction was being read, he ran at the judge and jumped over the judge's desk and, and just laid out the judge? Yeah? Did you catch what the charges were against him after that? I saw a reel this week that listed them off. It was like a three-minute litany of felony, 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 all from him just jumping over the desk and hitting the, the judge. I mean, that guy's life is, it went from bad to worse, to really, really, really bad, right? But all of those charges, man, this guy doesn't stand a chance. In a way, in the Jewish eyes, that's what Jesus was doing to himself right now. Okay, you're, you're working on the Sabbath, death. Blasphemy, death. What more, what more testimony do we need? This guy is clearly saying that he is God. Here's what I want you to see, church. It's, it's not that, that the Jews didn't understand what Jesus was saying. It's that they did understand what Jesus was saying, and they hated him for it. They would not believe. And that is so often the problem with so many people today. It's that they hear and that they understand, and yet the problem is they will not believe. 
Jesus here in the text in John chapter 5, church, is making an unapologetic, bold-faced claim to being God. He is God and equal with the Father. This is such a crucial doctrine in Christianity. So when we find it challenged, we need to be encouraged and we need to be reminded of passages like this so that if anyone ever comes to you and says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, or that's, that's not what he actually said, you can remember when you go back to passages like this, no, actually, that's not true. We can hear from Jesus' own mouth here, his own testimony, that he is God. In fact, that's point number one this morning. Hear Jesus on his full deity. Hear Jesus on his full deity. Have you ever stopped to consider what some of the other religions and cults think about Jesus? Maybe you have, if you've had the, the people come and knock on your door. I'm sure you've, if you've had a conversation with them, you've talked to them about what they think about Jesus. A few of the most common ones, how about uh, the, the Mormons? They'll come and knock on your door and they'll want to tell you that Jesus is not equal to the Father. Instead, Jesus is a, uh, he's the firstborn spirit child begotten by the, the heavenly father who they call Elohim uh, in a, 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 a relationship with an earthly woman that they refer to as the heavenly mother. Uh, that, that he is the firstborn spirit child, that, but he's not God in the sense of the, the God almighty and he's not worthy of worship the way that God is. That's the Mormon teaching. Uh, the second, let's consider the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They may come and knock on your door also and want to talk about Jesus. Well, for them, Jesus is actually the angelic archangel Michael. And they'll say that, that Jesus was his earthly name, but he's really the, the archangel Michael, and he was the first such being created by the God of the universe. However, he is not to be worshipped the way that we worship God. He's not to be worshipped on par with how we worship Jehovah in their eyes. How about one more? Uh, what are the, the Muslims going to say to us about God, or about Jesus, rather. Well, the, the Muslims are going to tell us this, that Jesus was a good prophet. In fact, perhaps the greatest prophet ever of Allah, but not the Son of God, not God, and absolutely not worthy of your worship. And then we find ourselves face to face with what the Jews think about his claims to being God. So there's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, Judaism. All of them get Jesus wrong. And what I want to make sure that we avoid this morning is committing the same error, getting this point wrong about Jesus. Again, back in our text, when Jesus says the things that he's saying, my father is working until now and I am working, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Notice the Jews recognize what he's saying. They hear his claim to deity fully, loud and clear, and they went to put him to death, not because they misunderstood, but because they perfectly understood, but they just didn't believe. Church, we need to come face to face with Jesus' own claims here in this passage. I don't know if you're in Christ this morning. If you are, this is a doctrine that you're familiar with. If you're not, if you're not a believer this morning, listen, I need you to look at the text. I need you to put your eyes on the scriptures and understand that, that Jesus, who we're talking about, we are not misrepresenting or misquoting Jesus. This is Jesus saying these things. And, and this morning, you have a decision to choose whether or not you're going to believe it, which has far-reaching ramifications for us. But as we think of the response of the Jews and we consider these responses here, the response of the Jews, though tragic, is better than those of the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Muslims because they at least understand what he's saying. They just choose to reject it. 
They're not going to try to pervert it or twist it or deny it. C.S. Lewis, uh, the author of the, the Chronicles of Narnia, among other works, uh, has written uh, or, or come up with an argument that posits that Jesus can be one of three things. Either first, he can be Lord. That is, he can be who he says he is in the pages of Scripture. We can read his testimony. We can read the arguments. We can read the other books that talk about Jesus. And we can see, okay, yes, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord, worthy of my full devotion and affection. Second, Lewis said, Jesus could be a liar. You could conclude after reading the Bible and interacting with the text, well, Jesus is just a liar. Well, if he's a liar, he's not worthy of your devotion. He's not worthy of your affection. He's not a good person. He's not worthy of following. He's not worthy of admiration or respect. He's a liar. Or third, Lewis posited he could be a lunatic. He could be a crazy person. Not that he's trying to deceive, but he is deceived. He's deceived into thinking that he's God. Again, if that's the case, he's not worthy of your affection or your devotion or your following. He's not worthy of your admiration or your respect. He's not a good person. He's a crazy person. There's been a fourth option introduced by the atheists recently that say, well, or he's another L, which is legend. That he never really said any of these things or did any of these things. It's all myth. Listen, in a few chapters, we're going to get to John chapter 8. And there's a large section of John chapter 8 at the very beginning that probably was not in the original manuscripts. Uh, we're going to spend that Sunday morning talking about the reliability of the Bible. Why you can trust the book in your hands. Why you can be confident that the things that we have recorded are trustworthy. Why we can walk away and say without a doubt that, that you can have confidence that this has not been corrupted, that this has not been twisted, that this has not been edited down through the ages. I bring that up because I want to hit a couple of those notes just this morning to give you some confidence to be able to respond to or understand when someone says, well, I think he's a liar or I think he's a legend, why we don't agree with that. Number one, do you know how many manuscripts alone of the Greek copies, and not full, all of them, but but partial and some full, we have of the New Testament over 5,000 manuscripts and growing of either a portion of or all of the New Testament books. So that means when we come to a passage like John 5, we've got the, 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 uh, the, the textual critics that can lay out these different manuscripts and look at these verses across multiple manuscripts and see that there's agreement across these manuscripts, some of which date super, super, super early. We're talking within 100 years of the, the, the events recorded therein. So we have abundant manuscript evidence. We'll talk about how that is different from Plato and Socrates and Caesar, works that are just taken at face value without any question. We'll talk about that when we get to John 8. So 5,000 New Testament manuscripts, 8,000 plus copies of the Vulgate. That's the Latin New Testament, which was first penned in the, the late 300s, 382, 400 range. We have over 8,000 copies there that we can compare and contrast and look at these textual manuscripts. Listen, there are no significant variants in the text when we compare these manuscripts. Nothing that would cause you to go, whoa, this version over here says Jesus isn't God and this version over here says it is. Nothing like that exists anywhere in any of the variants. There's agreement across the board on all of the major doctrines of Christianity, this one being paramount that Jesus is God. Not only that, think about the eyewitness claims in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And then he talks about the Lord Jesus being delivered over and then resurrecting and appearing. And one of the things he says, he's appeared to over 500. You know what he says right after that? He says, most of whom are still living. Why did Paul write that? Because he's giving an apologetic for the resurrection. He's saying, you want evidence? Go talk to these people. He, they're alive. They saw him resurrected from the dead. They saw him in the flesh. Beyond that, one more. Consider the outcome of the lives of the 11 disciples minus Judas. 
What happened to those men? They died for their faith. John was exiled. But they died for their faith. And you say, okay, well, people die for their faith all the time. Look at the, the, the suicide bombers. Okay, it's one thing to die for something that someone has taught you. It's another thing to die for something that you claim to be an eyewitness of. If I tell you the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl 100%, I know that. I'm an eyewitness of it. I traveled to the future. I saw it. It's going to happen. I'm an eyewitness. I saw it. And somebody comes to me and says, you're a liar and I'm going to kill you for your lie. At some point, I might defend it to a certain degree, but when they say there's the chopping block, lay your head down on the chopping block, the ax is sharp and ready to go, I'm going to back off because I know it's a lie. The eyewitnesses, these disciples died for their faith in God. Died for their claims to be the eyewitnesses of Jesus, to be the, the ear witnesses of the things that we're reading in John's gospel. This is why we say that he is Lord and it's worthy for you to trust and follow and believe. And why we look at all these arguments from these cults and say, that's not, that's not true. And you say, well, what's at stake if we were to give ground on this? Well, uh, what's at stake if we were to say, well, he's, he's not equal to the Father? What's at stake if we were to say, well, he's not the unique Son of God? What's at stake if we were to say he's not worthy of our worship? A few things. First, if we give up on the doctrine of the deity of Christ, we lose all of Scripture. Scripture depends on the deity of Jesus. You cannot compromise on the full deity of Christ and hold fast to your Bible. Because there are so many other texts that affirm the deity of Jesus, not just New Testament. Psalm chapter 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord. New Testament. Colossians 1. The affirmation of the deity of Christ drips from Colossians 1. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, if you say, well, let's compromise on the deity of Christ, you have to throw your Bible away. The other thing that we have to, to give up is atonement. Atonement, that is that, that Christ satisfied God's wrath for you. If you give up the deity of Jesus, then you have to throw atonement out too. Because here's, here's the thing, your sin and my sin have drawn as a response from a holy God an infinite degree of wrath, an, a degree of wrath that has no bottom, that has no end. The only way an infinite degree of wrath can be satisfied is through an infinite God. So if Jesus is not fully God, then there's no possible frame of reference where he could have satisfied God's full wrath for you and for me on the cross when he died for us. And so if we lose the deity of Christ, we lose the atonement, which means we lose salvation, which means we're going to hell, all of us. Finally, if you lose the atonement, you also lose eternal life. If you, if, sorry, if you lose the deity of Christ, you also lose eternal life. We're going to talk about that more next week. But Jesus, even in our passage that we'll get to, says that he has the power to give life. Well, if he's not God, then he can't give life any more than you can give life. Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. If any of you guys want to challenge that, go to a graveyard in the area and just start yelling at people to come out and see what happens. It's not going to work. The power to give life is God's power. Life physically to Lazarus, but more significantly what he did for us at the cross. If you lose the deity of Christ, he has no power to grant you eternal life. So the deity of Christ is significant. It's the first point to, to this whole notion of what do we do? Why are we here? The first thing that we are here to understand is that Jesus is God and that therefore demands and draws a response 
from us. And that's where Jesus goes from here in our final part of this, this morning's message. He's affirmed his deity. But now, rather than backing down and, and just walking away, he's, he's going to double down, triple down, quadruple down. I don't know what five, quintuple down. Yeah, he's going to do that too. He's just going to go further and say, make no doubt about what I am saying here. And that's where he goes next in our text. In fact, pick up in verse 19. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. When Jesus says that, he's going to say that multiple times in this section of John. He's calling attention and wanting to call something out that is, is to be different than what's around. Hey, listen, this is truth. What I'm about to say, this is truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only that which he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Okay, that may at first seem like Jesus is backing off. Like Jesus is admitting a little bit of an inferiority perhaps to the father. If he can do nothing other than what the father tells him to do, isn't that saying that he is in a different level than the father? What Jesus is saying with that statement is this. Jesus will never go rogue. That there's no scenario wherein the son would ever do anything independently of the father. And listen, the inverse is true as well. That the father would ever do anything independently from the son. That they are in perfect unity together. That there is no separation between their will. That they are in lockstep together. That he is claiming a unity that no one else and certainly no human being could ever possibly claim to have with God. So when he says the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only that which he sees the father doing, he's not admitting an inferiority. Rather, he's saying the father and I are in perfect agreement with one another. He's in equality of works with the father here. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. He goes on, he says this, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. He continues here, and in this passage, he's calling back to, if I can, John's introduction of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, what's it say? With God. In the Greek, it's face to face. It's an intimacy of relationship that is unique between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. In our context, we're talking about the Father and the Son this proximity that they shared together stresses the, the, the closeness of the relationship so much so that John's prologue ends by saying no one has ever seen God. The only God though, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Again, he's stressing the uniqueness of the intimacy between the Father and the Son such that the Son is the unique one able to exegete the Father. Explain the Father to us. Help us know who, who God the Father is. It's not only a, a, an equality in the works with the Father, but this e equality in relationship, that there's an intimacy here that is unique. As John MacArthur once said, there are no secrets in the Trinity. That the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. Why? Because they are so close together in their relationship with one another. Lockstep together. The love that the Father has for the Son. Verse 20 continues, And greater works than these, than what the Father has already shown, greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel, be astounded, be in wonder. Well, what are those greater works? Well, verses 21 and 22 are going to help us understand that and, and unpack that a little bit for us. Because he goes on, he says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. These are the greater works from a 30,000 foot view. 
on the ground, he's, uh, these that, that Jesus is talking to and the disciples that are within earshot, they're going to see him give life literally to Lazarus when he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is going to hop out of the, the tomb. More significantly than that, though, many who would have ears to hear are going to understand that Jesus gives life when he goes to the cross to give his own so that we can have life. But not only that, he's going to judge. And that's what we're waiting for now. We're in between the two appearances of Christ. When he comes back, that Revelation 19, the flames of fire, the the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he's coming back at that point to judge. He came the first time to give life. He's coming back to judge. We're in the in-between. But y'all, both of those categories, the giving of life and the judgment, those are two categories reserved for God and God alone. So when Jesus says, I can give life and I can judge, again, he is making sure everyone is abundantly clear that what he's saying is that he is God. That he is God. He doesn't say, I can give life kind of like the Father gives life. Sort of like the Father gives life. No, just as, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. We'll talk about this more next week. But this all leads to the conclusion, which is really the the culmination of this text. It's the pinnacle, it's the peak, it's the climax of the text for us in verse 23 when he says this, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The gloves are now fully off. This is one of the most astounding statements of the equality of the Son to the Father that you will find anywhere in Scripture some of the most profound Christology that we find anywhere in the Bible and it comes from the mouth of Christ himself. That all of this is true. That, it's a word that means for the purpose of. So that the result would be that all might honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Just as. This word honor means to revere, to attribute value or worth synonym might be worship. And, and Jesus is saying that, that, that all of this is true about him for the result that the purpose that all would worship the Son, honor the Son, revere the Son to the same degree that you revere, honor, and worship God the Father, Yahweh. In fact, the language here, what he's doing in the Greek is, is even stronger than it appears in our English translations because that word that followed by the, the, the tense that he uses or the mood that he uses there, it suggests a command force here. That all may honor the Son is how it reads in the text. It could be that all must honor the Son, that all should honor the Son. It, it, it's not like hey, the door's open. You can go out there if you want. No, it's it's, it's, it's open, the logical imperative conclusion is go. That all must, should, are impelled to, compelled to honor, worship the Son. This is an astounding statement to us. One that we're so familiar with as the church. Yeah, Jesus and God, they're equal. We should worship Jesus. We sing songs about Jesus. I, I, get, I get all that. Put your ears in the ears of the first century Jewish people listening to this statement. No one would have ever said anything like this. This is an amazingly astounding statement. And if Jesus is not who he said he is, then he is worthy of death. This is a statement worthy of death. 
if it's not true. If it's not true. Other passages in Scripture affirm the same concepts, though. Philippians 2, 5 through 6 have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who I've referenced this a couple times already this morning, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So there the Apostle Paul, former Pharisee who would have wanted to put Jesus to death, in fact did want to put Jesus to death for a statement like this. Now Paul is saying he is equal to the Father. Also, Paul, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in him, the Son, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Doesn't get more plain than that. How much God did Jesus have, according to Paul? All of it. All of it. All the fullness of God pleased to dwell in Christ. One more, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. A mirror image of his nature. Perfect equality. Y'all, here's the thing though. This is where this goes further. This concept that all may honor the Son just as he honor the Father. Because I mentioned... All of us in the room, okay, you're preaching to the choir, pastor, we're at church, we get it, Jesus equals God. We wouldn't be here if we didn't believe that. Jesus is God, it's, it's doctrine, I've read about it in my, my systematic theologies, I've read these passages, I understand it. But I want you to see, with the words that Jesus uses, that all may honor the Son, that this doctrine in John chapter 5 reaches out of the pages of Scripture and into your life. That this becomes more than intellectual assent. But it becomes something that now has a demand on how you respond to the doctrine. Our second final point this morning is along those lines. Make worship the goal of your life. Make worship, the worship of Christ specifically, the goal of your life. That you would live a life that in every facet, every corner, every nook and cranny exalts Jesus. That's one of the things that we want to be as a church, is a Christ-exalting church. That's more than just about this pulpit and the people that are up on this stage. We say church as in a body of believers. We want to be a church full of people that exalt Jesus, that make much of Jesus, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the entirety of our lives. I assume for most in this room, this doctrine is one that we would nod our heads to. I don't think that's probably where we struggle as much as in the application of this doctrine. Tiger Woods, when he was good at golf, had a swing coach named Hank Haney. And I read his biography, Hank Haney's biography, talking about how he was Tiger's swing coach. And, and when Tiger was at the peak of his game, you would think that the swing coach would think, man, this is great. This is the gravy train. This guy just goes out and hits the golf ball. Like, oh yeah, good, good swing, Tiger. That, that, that was great. Like, you don't have to do anything. That was some of Hank's least favorite times working with Tiger Woods. You know why? Because Tiger Woods was such an obsessive perfectionist about his swing that even as he's just blowing the field out of the water, lapping the field, winning tournament after tournament after tournament, it's like, okay, the, the question is who's in second place, not who's gonna win. Tiger's in the tournament, Tiger's gonna win. Even when he was at that position, he would, in the, on, during the week, in between tournaments, he would be there and Hank would be with him and he would be out on the driving range and Hank's sitting there going, Tiger, things are going great with your game. And Tiger's on the range and he's tweaking 
so many different things about his swing. He's thinking about his backswing and, and how he's, he wants to change the, the angle that he's taking it back at. He's taking it, thinking about where his club face is at impact and how he can, can adjust. And he's thinking about his fast twitch muscles and, and he's wanting to tweak things. And Hank is sitting there as a swing coach going, stop, just leave it alone. It's good enough. You're, you're doing good. You're winning. Leave it alone. Christian, we need to be, I'm not, this is the only, this is the only time you're going to hear me say you need to be like Tiger Woods, okay? Right now. We need to be like Tiger Woods was with his swing when it comes to our pursuit of worshiping Jesus. We, we can't ever get to the place where we're like, it's good enough. Let me kick it into cruise control and just win some tournaments. We need to be meticulous about searching out our lives and say, God, show me, like David in Psalm 139. Lord, reveal to me if there's any grievous way in my life where I'm not worshiping Christ with my entirety of my life, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. God, I want to honor the Son with everything that I am. Reveal to me if there's anywhere that I'm not. Because again, why? That is our goal. Our goal is to worship Christ, Apple's goal is to make good products. Your goal, because Jesus is God, is to worship him with your life. That is what you are here for. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. So let's talk about this for a second. Parents, let's talk about how you worship Christ in your parenting. Do you find that sometimes you're more annoyed with your kids than you are thankful for them? Or maybe you find difficulty in pursuing your kids and, and spending that intentional time with them. Y'all, God has given you, parents, your children as a stewardship to be used to worship him in the way that you parent your kids. So do you pursue them? Are you praying for them? Do they see you in God's word? Do they hear you quote God's word? Do they receive God's word from you? These are all ways that you can worship Christ through the way that you parent your kids. Are you looking at them as a stewardship or are you thinking about bedtime and when it's finally going to get quiet at home? <laughs> Let me ask another question, parents. Are you leading your children to love the bride of Christ? Or are you teaching them that the bride of Christ takes a backseat to other things in life? That's another way you can worship Christ through your parenting. Let's talk about marriage for a second. Husbands, wives, are you forgiving as you've been forgiven? Are you letting love cover a multitude of offenses? Let's get, let's get honest. Let's get transparent, right? When, when the toilet paper is set on top of the toilet paper roll instead of replaced on the toilet paper roll, are, are, you, are you letting love cover that offense? Or is that a burn in your saddle that's souring your attitude towards your spouse for the rest of the day? Man, I'm, I'm going to guess that you're like me. You've got a floor drobe. You've got your pile of clothes that's, that lives on the floor that hasn't made it to the hamper and it's not dirty yet. So you, you haven't put it away, but it's just the floor drobe. It's chilling on the floor. Ladies, has love covered a multitude of offense so that you look at that and it doesn't, it doesn't cause you to feel disdain and anger for your husband because he hasn't picked up his clothes. Men, are you willing to actually pick up your clothes and put them away to love your wife? You say, wow, that's, that's pretty minute. Yeah, that, that's what we're talking about, y'all. There is no category of your life. There is no arena of your life. There is no sphere of your life where you aren't obligated to worship Christ. Maybe you forgot to pick something up on the way home. Maybe it's even as simple as going out to eat somewhere and the two of you are conflicted about where you're going to go eat dinner. 
Are you willing to die to your preferences, die to self to, to prefer the other person as an expression of your love for Christ? Singleness. Let's talk about you for a second. Do you understand singles in the room? And, and you can pick up stones if you want, but let me just tell you this. Do you understand singles in the room that you are as unbusy as you will ever be right now? Your calendar is yours. And I understand you have a boss, you have a job, you have an employer. But you are, and this is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You have been given a gift such that your anxieties, good anxieties, can be solely focused on the Lord and serving him right now. Are you doing that? If you want to volunteer to serve on Kidsmen, you can volunteer to serve on Kidsmen. You don't have to check on, uh, with your spouse on, is this okay? Do we have time? Are, are we able to do this? If you want to be a part of our setup team and teardown team, both every week, then reach out to Stephen Little and he will call you blessed. But you can do that because you've got your calendar. You've got your schedule. Everyone at some point in time in their life, because no one's born married, has been given the gift of singleness. My question is, what are you doing with it? Are you using it to worship Christ? Work. Do you find that you complain more about your job than you do give thanks for the job that you have? Is your ambition at work more about pleasing God or pleasing your boss for that next promotion? Health and fitness. Are you taking care of your body as an act of stewardship or an act of vanity? Are you hitting the gym because you think, man, I, I want my body to be finely tuned so that I can serve the Lord for as long as he's going to give me on this earth? Are you hitting the gym because you want your, your sleeves to be a little bit tighter next time you show up? Maybe you're not hitting the gym at all, and that's the problem. Maybe you're not stewarding your body as an act of worship to God because God has given you that body to be stewarded and to be cared for. How about food choices? Listen, I, I get it. There are legitimate food allergies out there that require a change in habits and behavior, but there's also the possibility that we become slaves to our food. And we become obsessed with having to have everything just the right way. And we take that which God gave us to be used as, as an instrument to improve our energy to be able to serve him, and we enslave ourselves to that. Social media. Pastor Rod told me, if I'm not meddling, then I haven't preached this one well enough. So here we go. Is your phone robbing you of the time that you tell other people you don't have to read the Bible? The doom scrolling, reels, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. And this is cross-generational. This is not something that's just reserved for our students. Are you following accounts on social media that stir your affections for Christ? Let me ask it a different way. If Jesus were here this morning, would you turn over your Instagram account, let him see who you're following and what things you've liked? Politics. Here we go. Let's, let's really meddle for a second. But, but honestly, how, how do you talk about the person across the aisle from you politically? How do you post about them on social media? Are you praying for your leaders? Not in precatory psalms either. Are you praying for them? We're told in scripture we should honor the king. Guess who the king is for you this morning? It's the president in the Oval Office. This one, the one that's in the Oval Office currently. Are you honoring him in the way that you speak about him? You don't have to like the man. I'm not saying that or implying that, but, but your words reflect whether or not you're worshiping Christ in that area of your life. That's what I want you to see. 
that there's no area of your life that does not have a direct correlation to whether or not you are worshiping Christ there. It's a totality. It's a completeness. It's about all that we are, worshiping him. Because that all may honor the Son. Because of who he is, because he is God, the conclusion is we must worship him. Christian, that is why you are here. You're not here to make great products. You are here because Jesus is God and you are to worship him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great reality that Christ is God. And I pray that this week that we would leave encouraged to think different about all of these different areas of our lives. To look at some areas perhaps afresh and anew as opportunities to exalt Christ, to worship him. To look at some areas and consider them as, as maybe some things that we didn't think we could worship Jesus in that, that area. And be challenged to think, you know what? I, I can, I just need to think, what does that look like? Father, I pray that you'd give us an all-consuming passion to exalt Christ. That you would cause us to do that out of a, an all-consuming devotion to him that flows from an understanding of all that he has done for us through the cross and the empty tomb. Lord, this is, it shouldn't be a burden to us if we understand rightly the sacrifice made for us. That Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven and gave us his full righteousness. And that he rose from the dead three days later so that we could one day live with him forever. God, if we wrap our minds around that and we confess that we won't be able to do that until we get to eternity. And then we're going to spend eternity trying to understand more and more and more. But Lord, if we can even begin right now to understand a little bit of that this morning. Lord, that'll be the, that'll be the spark. That'll be the fuel. That'll be the flame that ignites this life that says, I want to worship him everywhere in every capacity. God, make us like David. Show us. Reveal to us this week the areas of our lives where we are not worshiping Christ with everything that we are. And give us, Lord, a commitment, a resolve by your spirit to say, you know what? I'm going to repent and I'm going to choose to bring that area of my life in submission to Christ. I'm going to choose to worship him here. I'm going to choose to exalt him here. That's why I have this in my life. That's why I have this marriage. That's why I have these children. That's why I have this job. That's why I have this time of singleness in my life. That's why I have this gym membership in my life. That's why I have this vote. Is really to honor Christ. May we be found having done that well when we appear before the Bema seat. Lord, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And the litmus test there is going to come down to this. How are we living? Are we living to exalt Christ with all we are? So Lord, give us an all-consuming passion for that, I pray this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.